Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all? All creation groaning He's a new creation coming He's the glory of the Lord To be the light within our midst Is it good that we remind ourselves of
Well, good morning, Emmanuel. <clears throat> if I uh, crack this morning like a 12-year-old teenager, I apologize. I feel great, but whatever I have is just lingering, so um, forgive me if I get too excited and I start cracking into different octaves. But that should make for exciting things, I guess, and good stories for later. So uh, we are in a summer-long sermon series that I've entitled uh, God, Life, and Our Expectations. Today, I don't quite know, I just, I don't know what to um, call this sermon today. Uh, uh, I'll call it, you know, uh, expectations of the, of the church and a local presence. I will be talking a little bit this morning about the dreaded P word, which is politics, which all of you are exhausted by, I am sure. Um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of, or a ton of time talking about this, but there's a, a conversation here. Um, that is uh, uh, aimed at us as a church body, not just as a church body, but as the church in our nation in general, that I do firmly believe needs to be in a sort of uh, realignment. A lot of it begins in our heart and in our mind and how we think about the church and how we think about our role as the church in whatever nation that a church may find itself on earth. I do believe that there's something um, uh, 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 that applies to all of them that we're going to be talking about this morning, which is church as a local presence. For a conversation for a different day, I've even thought about going through some of this deeper history on the separate, maybe recording, you know, podcast kind of thing, or, you know, I don't know, but not right now, because be here for two hours if I did so, but there's been a shift the past 40 years, especially the past 10 years, that um, has, uh, in all of our psyche in America, has drifted from a local, you know, uh, thinking like, I'm a local, I live in this city, to national concerns. National concerns just dominate our news. If you have a smartphone and pull up a news app, it's almost entirely is just dominated by national news, things happening in the Oval Office, things happening in the federal government, national, national, national. And it's very difficult um, to, uh, unless you're signed up for a local newspaper, right, to, to really start thinking about you as a citizen of this country, um, as a local of a specific place that God has placed you in, that has placed this church in. Um, you can see this in phrases that churches sometimes have, and I'm sometimes guilty of this kind of language, like, we're going to change the world for Jesus. This church is going to change the world, the world, world, world. And oftentimes, I think, well, what about, like, where you are? What about Wilmington, our zip code, where we are, right? And it's that kind of shift in thinking I want to talk about because it may seem slight, it may seem not as important as you think, but I would argue it's very important because if we don't start thinking this way, our attentions and our energies and the call to make disciples as a church is going to be clouded. Your headspace is going to be mostly full of national issues thinking that somehow your concerns and your involvement needs to be somewhere on that huge upper plane of like national problems when locally there are so many issues and needs that just absolutely should be demanding our church's attention, but we know way more about what's happening in Washington, D.C. than we do what's happening two miles down the street. 
And I would say for the American church, that's got to change. Because you can make a difference a mile or two down the street or in the life of your neighbor or in the block that you live in. You can, right? Very few people have the, a, a world impact, right? Celebrities or, you know, the Billy Graham kind of figures. Those people are very, very small percentage-wise in history. But you, as an ambassador of Jesus, can actually make a difference where you live, where you work, and where our church is located. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to use Psalm 2 in order to do so. This one seemed like an interest. This is only an interesting sermon, all right? And I, I don't know if this one makes sense. This is one of those sermons where I felt a calling to prepare, and I'm like, I don't even know if this is going to make sense. You know, it made sense to me, so hopefully the Lord will use it. Psalm 2. You have a Bible, flip to Psalm 2. I'm going to argue this morning. This is a little roadmap. The nations is in the Lord's hands. I'm going to argue that he has sent us, yes, to go into all nations. I'll just hold that roadmap. I'm going to confuse you. Just, all right, Psalm 2. You'll understand where I'm going. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot <clears throat> in vain? <clears throat> the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in a way, for his wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all who take a refuge in him. You're saying, this is an interesting psalm, right? Like, what is going on in this psalm? Well, we learn in Acts chapter 4 that David is the author. It's not prescribed to David. And the first thing that comes out when you look at Psalm 2 is, if you look back in history, in the time of Israel, none of these things happened in David's day, right? David was really only the, the second Technically, maybe, you know, technically the second king, but really almost like the first king of Israel, right, that um, was, uh, you know, proceeding in the past that the Lord had desired Israel to be. The nations were never subdued beneath David, right? David is talking about something almost as a prophet would. I'm going to argue that Psalm 2, even though it has meaning today, ultimately this is a prophecy of something that is to come. But Psalm 2 um, it lives in the, the, uh, the, the air of the New Testament. It's quoted numerous times. You're going to see some of those quotations that kind of, it, this is obviously going to be, this psalm is ultimately about our Lord Jesus. We're going to see what exactly is going on. But the first thing we recognize is, well, if these things weren't happening, then what is David talking about? And let's keep working through this. 
This world that David is describing is a world in which all the nations are raging against God and raging against his anointed. They are trying to free themselves from his, ultimately, his, his lordship. There's an assumption here that God is ruling all nations and the nations are aware of it. And they say, we don't want this. How can we free ourselves from the chains of God? And this kind of reminds you, if you look at, I think it's Isaiah 14, where um, you know, we think at least it's probably the story of Satan in heaven who maybe had similar thoughts, you know? I'm wonderful and I'm beautiful and strong and there's God and how can I be free from God? And you know, this is a pride that's just inherent in the sinful thinking that we even have as human beings. But the nations are raging, they're plotting on how to actually remove themselves from the Lord's authority. And in verse four, it gets even more interesting. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That's an image that you don't really hear often of God, laughing almost like in a mocking tone against those who want to overthrow him. It says in verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, what is his wrath and his fury? As for me, I, will have, I have set my king on Zion. His, his anger at the unrighteousness of the nations is going to be coming forth through his king whom he is setting on Zion, his holy hill. Zion, it began as a reference to a specific place, Jerusalem, where the actual temple was, and it kind of became a little bit bigger than that. It kind of became almost like wherever God was, and even the book of Amos, um, the people of God are referred to as Zion, right? And so this idea of Zion is almost like an, um, uh, uh, a larger idea of where, wherever God is, right? And so where God is, he is setting his king down in authority, his special anointed one. In verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, to the king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's an interesting thing that we can find in, in the ancient Near East uh, that reads almost exactly like this. And it's something called the Covenant of Grants. And this is what that was about. If you were a Lord, capital, or sorry, lowercase L, Lord, and you owned a lot of land, you had a lot of money, and you had people working for you, what would happen was you had that one servant, that one employee on your land who just was so faithful, and you realized you could entrust him with so much that you would, um, these lords would oftentimes elevate them and almost like uh, adopting and call them son, give them a title, give them the title of son to say, what my family has and the inheritance that's due to my family is, now it's gonna be yours. Like now it's actually shared with you, right? And this is, this is common in these days in the ancient Near East. And the Bible kind of steals this language as, as God is referring to his anointed one saying, my anointed king is not just my king, but he is my son, whom is going to receive the actual inheritance that God himself has. And if you have the New Testament in your background here, you think, well, yeah, that can only be, the inheritance of God can only belong to one who is God, which ultimately we know this is Jesus that God is referring to. And so he, 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 he refers to his king as not just his king, but his son, and his son is going to receive all the authority of God, and what will he do with this authority? To crush wickedness on this earth. 
And those of you who think God is judge is a harsh message, that God is the one who crushes wickedness is a harsh message, but if, you, if that's you, but you're, you're happy when you see our justice system actually do what it's supposed to do, well, that's just a glimpse of God as judge. That's a glimpse of God that says one day, you know, a, a, a good and righteous system of justice in any nation is just a glimpse, is just really carrying out what God himself will and is and will ultimately finally carry out on the day that he returns, which is justice against all sin and wickedness and pride in this world. It's going to happen through his anointed one. Now, in verse 10, there's three things that's mentioned that almost is given towards these nations as a, almost like a command, right? That says, like, if you want to know how to, uh, you know, be on good terms with God, the ruler of all nations, and his anointed one, now there's this pair, right? This is what happens. It says in verse 10, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Wake up, kings. You want to be, you know, with wisdom here, proceed. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. That's Yahweh. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling and kiss the son, lest he be angry. You perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The three things here is first to serve God, and that's backwards. God is telling kings to serve him. Kings don't serve others. Kings have people serve him, and God is once again establishing himself, saying, I, I am king of all things. I am the ruler of all things, and my anointing one is ruling in my stead. Serve me. Serve me, O kings and rulers of this world. Serve me with fear and with trembling. You ever been in something so magnificent that you can't take your eyes off of it, but you're also scared all at the same time? Right? That happens when I, you know, I, I would go to Colorado. I've already mentioned this numerous times. And, you, and you know, you, we would have a meeting up in Estes Park. And you go to Estes Park and you see the Rocky Mountains as the entrance of the National Park. And you see these, you know, 14,000-foot snow-capped mountains. You drive the road up there and you hit, you know, 12,000 feet elevation. You go to kind of down. You turn a corner. There's one corner where you turn these little mountain roads where it's like you see the woods and the rocks all around you, then it opens up, you just see this mountain, and it's so huge, and the snow is just glistening, and this is in June when I would go, and there's still snow there, and it's so huge, you can't help but stare at it thinking, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And you're also thinking, that thing looks terrifying, <laughs> all at the same time. That's how we would feel if we stood before God, right? You say, you are amazing, but wow, you are huge. Wow, you are so huge, but I cannot take my eyes off of you, right? And that's what he's calling the nations to have before him. And then he says, kiss the sun, which is a weird translation because that comes from the KJV. If you look in the actual language, you know, it's, it's more of a call of sincerity because what would happen in these covenant grants is that some of these servants would kind of, you know, vie for this adoption to be brought up as sons and they would do it kind of, you know, slyly to then take advantage of this and kind of overthrow the Lord and get more than they asked for. And that was, it wasn't a sincere service thing. God is calling these nations. He says, no, 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 sincerely serve me, right? Like imagine you know, going before a king and kissing the hand and all of your heart just bowing before him saying, I, I, I love you, my Lord. That's what he's calling these nations to have before him. He says, do this with sincerity, with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can't fake this before God. He knows the innermost corners of your heart. You can't fake this with him. 
So back to our introduction. We just worked through Psalm 2 very quickly. There's more could be said. If we talk about the church as a presence, as a local presence or a national presence, as we talk about how, you know, our, our, our nation is just absolutely, we're all just exhausted by these, this political discourse, but most, like 90% of it is usually always directed towards the national endeavors. And we sometimes imagine that if, if, if we recognize ills in our nation and problems and needs even of Christ in our nation, that we must look to the, the national level of things and try to, you know, cast all of our efforts towards that. And if, if that's our thinking, you read Psalm 2, then we say, well, great, yeah, there's an easy jump to make. All we have to say is our nation needs to repent before wrath comes upon them, right? That's the easy jump from Psalm 2 to modern times. And I would say, slow down, slow down. There's a lot of Bible after Psalms 2. A lot of things happen after Psalms 2 that make Psalm 2 even more interesting because the New Testament quotes it numerous times. And when Jesus showed up, it's like he gets Psalms 2 and he just goes like whoop and just turns it upside down. And you're like, what? What is, what's going on? Because when Jesus showed up, Psalm 2 was living in the minds of Israel. And they were looking for this anointed king to come whom God would use to bring about all of these things and finally prop Israel back up as the blessing that um, would, would drive all the nations back to God. And when Jesus showed up and was doing his miracles and doing his ministry, they said, this is it. He's the anointed one. Then Jesus would continually just, there it was. Did you hear it? Yeah, there was it. Number one, you can keep a scratch pad if you want and keep track. <clears throat> I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Jesus was, uh, he was continually challenging that thought and would, was claiming to be something, yes, the anointed king, but something different that was being missed by everyone. And a fascinating passage, very early on in his ministry, Luke 4, he's in a synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth, and he gets the scroll of Isaiah. And, you know, there was no chapters in those days. And he just, he rolls this thing out and he picks Isaiah 61, and he starts reading this before the whole synagogue, and this is what he says. He unrolled, this is Luke chapter four, verse 16 through 21. Um, uh, he was brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, he stood to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he just sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. In other words, they were all just staring. I'll tell you why in a minute. And then he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what's going on? Let's read this quote from Isaiah 61 and you'll see why everybody was staring at him. It was a stare of confusion. Isaiah 61 reads this way. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's what he said. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus was quoting a Greek translation, so our English reads a little differently, but it's the same. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, <clears throat> and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to give liberty. That's where Jesus stopped. But the sentence is not done. He stops literally halfway in a sentence. What do the next words read? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. Jesus, you didn't finish the sentence. 
You read half of the sentence and you sat down. That's not, that's not how you read the Bible. You, you can't just grab a sentence and read half of it and say, there, that's, that's, I want to talk about that. No, read the whole sentence, Jesus. He didn't do that. He just read half. He avoided the vengeance part. That's why they were staring at him like, what, what, what? you didn't read the whole thing, Jesus. Because the secret of Jesus' ministry that everyone had a really hard time seeing was that the age of the church was coming and a period of grace was opening. That Psalms 2, that the, the kingdom of God's Son was going to be here, <coughs> but not fully. It was coming, but not in the fullness that we see even in the book of Revelation that will take place in the second advent. Jesus was first going to come as a righteous king who would first be the suffering servant. He will become a shield from the future wrath of God today by opening doors of salvation for the whole earth before the end judgment comes. And we literally see all that is in Psalm 2 being flipped upside down in another amazing story in John 18. In John 18, Jesus is arrested after Gethsemane, and he was before Pilate, and the crowd is cheering for his crucifixion, and Pilate kind of, you know, pulls him aside away from the crowds, and he's like talking one-on-one to Jesus, and he, and he says this. Um, he says, are you king of the Jews? Are you a king? Because everybody says you're a king. Are you, are you king of the Jews? In John 18, verse 34, Jesus answered, you got to love Jesus. In the middle of the chaos, of his death is approaching, and Jesus is concerned about Pilate's heart. Just a little side note here. No matter how big this world is and what crazy chaos is happening all around you, Jesus never loses sight of you. You gotta understand that. And that's what I love about this story, little side thing here, is all the chaos going on and Pilate's drilling him here. He's concerned about Pilate. It's like, Jesus, you're about to die. He's like, well, I care about Pilate. Let me talk to Pilate's heart. Because in verse 34, Jesus says, Pilate, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this about me? He's challenging him. Right? Do you think I'm king? What about you, Pilate? Pilate 35, he blew it off. He goes, oh, am I a Jew? Come on, your own nation, the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting <clears throat> that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of or not from this world. That's an important distinction. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus said, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate famously says, <coughs> what is truth? Jesus said he was a king, but he says, I'm not the kind of king you would expect because if I was the kind of king that you're expecting, my servants and my disciples would have been more like soldiers. They wouldn't have let me get this far to be arrested, right? And the cool thing about that statement is what Jesus is implying is that he kind of let himself get arrested. It was kind of part of the plan. And what he's also implying by saying that is, Pilate, I'm in control here. Like, I'm, I, I'm actually the one calling the shots, Pilate. Right. My kingdom is not of this place. I am a king, but my kingdom is different than what you're looking for. My servants aren't fighting for me. You see, if you have a, a, a national kind of more political king that we would talk about, our president has bodyguards, and every leader on this world has bodyguards, and that's what you would expect. If, if the person, if your king is in danger, you shield yourself to save him, or you do what you can to save him, and Jesus' disciples didn't do that. And he goes, well, that's on purpose, because I, I, I got to die. 
I'm the king who's come to die. It's the purpose that I was born into this world. I'm not the, the, that king that you're looking for. And what happens is in Psalm 2, God is the one laughing in mockery of the wicked nations. Look what happens in John 19, right after this conversation. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Who is doing the mocking right now? Who is doing the laughing? The anointed king is receiving the mocking. The anointed king is the one who's being laughed at. Psalms 2, it is God who is laughing at the unrighteous, and now we have Jesus being mocked by the unrighteous. He's flipping Psalms 2 upside down. God said he would place his king on the hill of Zion. The Bible refers to Golgotha as a hill that our king wearing his crown of thorns was placed on. And it was not a throne that he was placed on, but a cross that he was placed on. Once again, Psalms 2 is being flipped upside down. Now, this story of Psalms 2, is, it, it's, it's, uh, it carries on because Psalms 2 becomes, uh, the early church became aware of the meaning of it. After the resurrection, after they saw Jesus rise from the dead and make the call to go and make disciples of all nations, <clears throat> they understood what Psalm 2 was really about. They saw this age of grace that had opened up where God just apparently just continually delays his coming, as Peter said, just in order that more people may come to know their God and creator and be saved through the Son, Jesus, and receive the Holy Spirit. That's why he keeps delaying, because of his mercy. And they figure this out. And Psalm 2 then became a source of great encouragement, because what Psalm 2 points to is what happens when Jesus returns, right? Because God will subdue the nations, he will, as Revelation 12 points, it quotes Psalm 2, that he will, Jesus will take up that rod of iron and will restore this world to how it should have been and had the way that God designed it to be and wanted it to be until sin got in the way. And so there's a story when Peter and John were arrested. They healed a guy who was paralyzed up until he was 40. The man stands and he walks, and they're preaching Jesus, and they get thrown in jail. And they realize they can't do much about this because so many people saw the miracle and saw the, the miraculous and said, we, we, we can't deny that something incredible has happened. This man's over 40. He's never walked a day in his life, and he's walking now. Nobody can deny something just happened. So they released them, and look what they say in Acts 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders have said to them, which they said, no more preaching in Jesus' name. And they said, sorry, not going to happen. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of the, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage or the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Sound familiar? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Psalm 2 and its prophecy of what Jesus is going to do became a primary source of encouragement to where when the nations raged against these Christians, they said, Lord, we know how it's going to end, so all we can do is pray and ask for a unique filling of your spirits to empower the ministry of these Christians in, in this church in order that those around us may see you before it's too late, in order that those around us may be healed and may actually interact and meet and brush shoulders with your spirits and receive grace upon them and be saved. Lord, would you grant us the courage to keep going no matter what happens to us? And God gave the affirmation by literally shaking the place. The result was that they stood up with boldness and kept proclaiming the name of Jesus. Why do I share all of these things? as we close. Because church, I believe we need a redirection in some ways. We need to see that God is working on a global scale. He really is. Almost every nation on earth at this point, there's still a decent amount that have either hidden Christians or no Christians. But just year by year, the population of Christians in this world is continually increasing, especially in the global south. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's in the West especially, we're one of the only ones shrinking right now. The rest of the world is becoming more Christian, and we're not, with different conversation for a different day. God is still moving. He is still working on a global scale. And we read Psalms 2, we read Revelation, and we see what's going to happen tomorrow, what's promised to us in the second advent, and Psalm 2 will come to fruition, and we say, Lord Jesus, Come. We pray that. But as he delays what Psalm 2, and we see how Jesus flipped everything upside down, what this does for us is it realigns our understanding of the church's role in this world. This age of grace has opened us up to be able to share and to be the good news of Jesus by the power of the Spirit to those who are around us. My encouragement to you, church, this morning, as you see Peter and John draw encouragement and boldness from Psalm 2, is that those around Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, they saw what Jesus was doing in and through them, right? In our age of almost global focus, of national focus, my call to you this morning as we enter into this next chapter of Emmanuel is to say, your primary energies must be directed towards where you live. The things you read, the news you consume, yeah, we should be concerned what's happening at the local level. Yeah, you should vote, and we should be concerned about the laws being passed and things. But I'm telling you right now that God has called you to your neighbors because you have a role to play to your neighbors. And you can look as we think about our nation, the big picture stuff, draw encouragement for Psalm 2, but draw boldness for Psalm 2 to go to your neighbors and to be the hands and feet to your neighbors. If you, found yourself, if you find yourself just raging against whatever political news you, you hear, cut it off and just go knock your neighbor's door and say, hey, do you want a cup of tea? Do people still drink tea? I like tea. You want a cup of tea? You want to hang out? Can I bring you dinner one night? Can I meet you? Can my family come hang out? Meet 
people. Yesterday we had about 30, we was in a huge turnout, only about 30, a little more than 30 people showed up to our attempt at it. We call it the Summer Family Fun Fest. The goal of it was just, and the people that showed up were neighbors. Like they lived back here and across the street and, you know, blocked down and I had to shake hands with them all and meet 30 people who were just our neighbors. And my continually word, you know, my word to them all was just, hey, we're, we're the church down the street. I'm the new pastor. These are people in our church and we love our community and we just hope that you were blessed today. We love Jesus here where we preach the Bible here and we just, we wanted to be a blessing to you today. And that was it. But here's the trick here. As this call to a local focus should dominate our minds, as we see that we can entrust the, the world to God, and we can look at our zip code and be um, uh, uh, filled by the Spirit to go do ministry there, what happens is if every church did this, if every church in our country began thinking that way, if all of our ministries and energies as Emmanuel Church was focused on local things and local people, if every church did that, guess what would happen to our nation? In time, we would have a new nation. We really would. There's one final story I want to read. Because if I can bring another, I guess you can say, um, uh, correction to things. When, when we become focused on national things, we think the church's role nationally is, you know, that should consume all of our time and our thinking and we get enraged by all those things. We lose a, a focus on the people that are around us. Um, we have to match that kind of level of power and influence to make a difference. This is why a lot of times Christians, in whatever political spectrum you are, can get wrapped up in positions of authority and thinking, well, if only celebrities or people in the highest chairs of authority were Christians, if only then, then our nation could change. The same kind of thinking happened to James and John once, and their mommy, actually, <laughs> was the one who went to Jesus to make a request of power and influence. I want you to understand these words here because we get a clear call of how we should operate as a church and how we as Christians should imagine ourselves as disciples of Jesus and we brush shoulders with our community. Listen to what this story says. After Jesus's, uh, James and John's mom comes up and says, hey, um, can, my, can my two boys be on your right hand and be on your left hand? In other words, in this new kingdom coming where they were imagining Psalm 2 to come to fruition, can they be, be like the most important guys? Like, you're important, yes, Jesus, you're the, but can they be like the next ones, like, you know, really important here? Because they imagined that kind of level of power was important. And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. I'm going to die, actually. And he says, James and John, are you guys ready to do that? And they were like, I think so. And he was like, well, you will. And they did. But then he says these words. But Jesus called them to him. He said this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and, they, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yeah, it sounds like what kings and presidents and nations and political leaders do. They take authority and they throw it and lop it over your head. And Jesus says this. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came. Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The famous saying, what would Jesus do? He just said it. He came to serve. As a church, we're here to serve in the name of Jesus. 
my encouragement to you this morning is that you become continually aware of those around you, that we entrust the future of nations to the Lord, but we recognize our calling today to love and serve others and to be and to embody the good news of Jesus to all of those around us. And as we take steps forward in this next process and the next ministries here at Emmanuel, I intend to lead in that direction, that our church will be a local presence, that that church down the street, people will recognize that's a church in my neighborhood, that's a church in my community. Oh, I see those Emmanuelites everywhere. They're always out there. They're always doing great things. They're always loving people. They're always so kind. Why are they so kind? What, why is this church everywhere I turn when there's a need or there's a opportunities to serve? Why are they always there? And we get to say, have you heard of Jesus? Let me pray. Jesus, um, and call the worship team up as I'm praying. Lord, that Acts 4 story is so uh, um, powerful because Lord, it was your Holy Spirit who confirmed their heart, Lord. We know that our nation is continually post-Christian and and many things um, uh, uh, of Christianity, of you, people, you know, in different groups and entities and even levels of our government are becoming more and more hostile to, Lord. That is nothing new. It has happened for thousands of years. It will continue to happen. But Lord, what has been the consistent thread is that you have always been with your people. You have always sent your spirit to empower them to do amazing and even miraculous things and encourage them and fill them with great boldness and courage to still go out, still proclaim your name, and still love with great power from your Holy Spirit. And people all over the world still see it and still come to know you. And Lord, all we can pray is that as a church, We can trust the future of judgment and and nations to your hands. But Lord, would you give us a vision to see those that we walk by every single day. I see so many people walking in front of my house, Lord, every day. I've learned some of their names, but Lord, I pray for those people, Lord. I want to know them. I want to have an opportunity to serve them and to love them. Lord, I pray for those that in this church that they see walking by their own homes and their neighborhoods or in their workplace, that coworker they haven't spent a lot of time speaking with or that family member, whoever it may be, Lord, would you just fill us and cross our paths with people who are hurting and who need to see you, Lord. And would you fill us with a special filling of your spirit that our interactions with them may be filled with power and greatness that they may see you in us. And Lord, may our minds be full of these things and less full of national news and national concerns and more of local news and local concerns that we can actually make a difference in. And Lord, I call all churches to start thinking this way across their nation. For Lord, then we will see a truly renewed America if in every locale the church is focused on its own neighbors. Lord, given enough time, we will have a different nation before us. Fill us with your spirit to those purposes, Jesus. We thank you that we can entrust and hope in your second coming. That, Lord, you will be coming, Lord, to judge the wicked and to overthrow Satan once and for all. And you, as the anointed Son of God in all majesty and power, you will once and for all subdue all nations to your feet as you renew all things and make all things new. And as we wait for that day, may we serve just like you did. We pray this in your name. Amen.
in your presence that's where I am strong in your presence oh Lord my God in your presence that's where I belong seeking your of the rock in your presence oh God I want to go where the rivers cannot overflow me where my feet are on the rock I want to hide
you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.